Uh, good evening. It's 8 o'clock in Yerushalayim. This is webyshir.org. It's time to begin our regular shir in halacha. The topic which we're beginning in this mini-series is the Goral Hagrah. We'll get it spelled when we see the sources on the, on the uh, screen in a few minutes. Uh, the Goral Hagrah is one example of a mystical procedure for receiving divine guidance. You don't know what to do. Should you go left? Should you go right? Should you take the job? Should you not take the job? Should you should you emigrate? Should you remain in your country? Yeah, you have a big decision to make. And you can't decide what to do. So the, the Goraha Grop is a kind of divine lottery. We'll see, we'll see more precisely as we get into the sources exactly how to do it. But basically what you do Take a Tanakh, uh, you open up at random, you stick your finger, and uh, the verse that your finger lands on is going to have a clue regarding what it is you're supposed to do. And now uh, uh, the question arises whether or not all of this is permissible, what the basis of it is, how it works. Well, there's a lot to be said about it. Now, of course, we're talking here about one specific mystical methodology for uh, receiving divine guidance from uh, from heaven but uh, uh, the principles which we're going to cover the under underlying principles cover of course a wide range of issues if you have any questions during the class feel free to type your question on chat I'll see your question on my screen and I can incorporate the answer into the ongoing class uh, if you're watching this class on uh, on the archive, and uh, all the classes are recorded and are available at webyeshiva.org, beginning a few hours uh, after after the shiur. If you're watching this on uh, the recorded version on the archive, and you want to ask me a question, feel free to send me an email. Here's my email address. I think I got it right there on chat. You have my email address if you want to uh, if you want to send me a question by email. If you do, uh, just mention in your email the original date of the uh, of the class, so I'll know what it is you're referring to, and I can send you back an answer. I, I, I don't look at email every day, but within a few days I'll get to it and uh, send you back an answer. Now, uh, uh, that said, let's begin with the material first. Uh, the, the text we have on the screen before us, and, and I always give you uh, very precise uh, source, sources, a very precise reference from which I drew the source. Here it's on page, uh, pages uh, 245, 246 of the, of the Sefer I'm quoting. That's the Shalot and Shuvot, the Yashav Hayam. These are responses which were recently published by Rav Hillel. Rav Hillel is, if not the leading, surely one of the leading Kabbalists, one of the leading mystics in the Jewish world today. He is the, uh, the, the Rosh Yeshiva of Ahavat Shalom, which I'm, I'm pretty sure is the largest 
Kabbalistic yeshiva in Yerushalayim. I think it's the largest Kabbalistic yeshiva anywhere in the world. A, a yeshiva where, in addition to traditional studies of Gemara and everything related to Gemara, they emphasize very strongly the study of, uh, of Zohar, uh, Jewish mystical texts, and everything that, that flows from the thinking of the Zohar, which is the primary mystical text. So what, what, what the texts we're about to look at, uh, a leading Rosh Hashiva, surely uh, one of the leading uh, authorities in Jewish mysticism today. Uh, let's see what he has to say about all of this. Uh, first, he has a long discussion going around, going along uh, around a few pages about Boralot, about uh, lotteries in general, including everything from let's flip a coin to decide what we're going to do or, or a, anything more elaborate than that. It's a long discussion based on sources up and back, down and down and uh, back and forth, and he concludes as follows. If all of the of the various kinds of lottery are considered, they divide into three groups. Let's see the three the three kinds of methods which are used for resolving human problems with divine guidance. Uh, Aleph, the first. If you have two partners. They own a, a piece of real estate together. They own a business together. I mean, a partnership could be just about anything. They have two partners, and, and they don't get along well with each other for various reasons. Whatever the reason is, they decide to divide their partnership. Well, um, in dividing the partnership, the simplest way to divide a partnership is to have an amicable agreement between the two partners and on the side how to how to divide the assets of the company, or or if it's real estate, they'll decide how to cut it in half, and hey, one person gets half the real estate, one person gets another half. You know, like a, an amicable decision, and when whatever the two partners, three partners, four partners, whatever they decide. Is, is is fine. I mean, it's their property, and if they wish to dissolve their their partnership, they can divide the property however they want. But what happens if they can't agree? They can't agree. Ah, the, the partnership owns six different houses, and they want to dissolve the partnership and to divide those six houses among uh, two partners, among three partners, whatever it is. And they can't decide. They can't decide, you know, which houses should go to which partner or whatever, whatever the partnership is. They can't come to a friendly decision just discussing the matter among themselves. So the, the, what they should do is just uh, uh, have one partner buy out the other. One partner buys out the other. One says... Uh, I'll buy out your share, and uh, uh, we'll figure out what the what the, the 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 market value is of the total partnership, and you'll get half of that. And I'll, I'll take the property; you'll get the money. That would be a simple way of uh, of dividing the partnership. But then they start to argue: uh, who's going to get the cash, and who's going to keep the property? They can't decide. <laughs> they can't decide what to do. Uh, they, they they don't get along well with each other. So they say. No, uh, let's flip a coin. 
that's agree to flip a coin the heads uh, uh, I get the cash and you get the property tails the other way around uh, let's flip a coin and let God decide how we're going to divide our partnership or we own two houses and we can't decide who's going to get which house. They're of approximately equal value, but we can't decide who's going to get which house. Let's flip a coin. Uh, heads, I get this house. Heads, I, uh, I get the other. Tails, I get the other house. Let's uh, let's let God decide the issue. And and the two partners, three partners, however many partners there are, all agree. Okay, we'll leave the decision in the hands of heaven. Let's flip a coin. Or we're going to see more elaborate ways of doing a. Uh, of doing a lottery uh, later on. Naasit bekoach haskamat atzadim leberur chalka. Such a lottery, whether it's flipping the coin or something more elaborate than that, is done with the mutual agreement of all the parties. That's one kind of lottery seeking God's decision in what to do, where where all the parties involved have agreed to. Uh, uh, to uh, let the dice fall where they may, let the cards fall, fall where they may, and we'll and we'll do whatever whatever God decides on the basis of the lottery. Zel hetagamur. This is entirely permissible. There's absolutely no objection to this kind of divine guidance. After all, the property is theirs. They own it. If they wished, that they could give it away as a gift. It's theirs to do with as they wish, and if this is the way they want to dispose of it, they have every right to do so. There's no objection to this whatsoever. We're not talking here about an act of prophecy, which is maybe only in those days and not nowadays. This is the result of a simple business decision and entirely permissible. Of course, it has to be done without any fraud. I mean, if you're going to throw the dice or flip the coin, it has to be an honest one. Everything has to be done on the up and up. You can't have one, one partner defrauding the other. But assuming that everything is done honestly and correctly, then this is entirely permissible. Let God make the decision how the coin is going to fall if you flip the coin or whatever method you use. That's one kind of lottery seeking divine guidance in making a decision, and it's entirely permitted. Bet, the second category. Uh, some kind of mystical procedure, some kind of mystical procedure uh, which will obligate someone which will impose a burden upon someone for what he or she did. What do I mean? Like, for example, in the story of Achan and Yehonatan, in the biblical story, this Eino Mo'il is useless, accomplishes nothing, I'll give you some examples, and you'll understand exactly how it works. The court doesn't know whether or not the defendant is guilty or not of having committed the crime. The, the, the evidence is inconclusive for guilt, inconclusive. For, for, the, the court cannot make a decision whether this 
defendant belongs in jail or not. Uh, uh, the, the, the court cannot make a decision, cannot reach a conclusion about whether or not this defendant has to pay a fine to the other party or not. The judges on the court, right, a, a, a rabbinic court, requires a panel of at least three judges. The, the judges on the panel argue with each other. They can't come to a decision. And one of the judges says, let's leave it in God's hands. We'll flip a coin. Heads, he's guilty. Tails, he's innocent. Well, well, uh, this is acceptable for people who have the divine spirit, who have Ruha Kodesh. This is acceptable only for people who have direct contact and, and receive direct information from above. Upshita, and it's obvious. It's perfectly obvious that if we're talking about a genuine prophet, Yeshayahu, Moshe Rabbeinu, if we're talking about Micha, a genuine prophet who has direct communication from God, then of course we can rely upon what the prophet says. What the prophet says is truly coming from God, and we shouldn't have second thoughts about relying upon a prophet. Of course, this is of no application today because we do not have prophecy today. Back in the days of the Bible, back in biblical times, when there were prophets, oh, if Shmuel Hanavi, uh, Yirmiyahu Hanavi uh, said this is the way to do it, of course, uh, uh, you should, well, assuming the prophet said this is what I heard from God as being the way to do it, then, uh, then, then, then you, uh, you, of course, do what the prophet said, and you should not have second thoughts about that. Of course, of course there are a ton of requirements for a prophet to be qualified as a prophet. Among other things, he has to have a proven track record of being able to predict the future correctly on uh, uh, unusual, unexpected events. You know, you would never have expected such and such to happen, and he predicted it correctly. Well, once or twice isn't enough. You, you, you need you need a, a substantial track record uh, demonstrating that he has uh, or she has. Uh, direct communication from God. Well, all this was back in those days. We don't have prophets today. This category is not applicable to us. Uh, Gimel, the third kind of goral is goral. The third kind of goral is a is a is a any mystical procedure intended to tell you the future. If you want the future to be revealed to you and you use some mystical procedure for doing that, whether it's uh, tarot cards or, or anything, it doesn't matter what the mystical procedure is, if it's done in order to reveal to you what the future will bring, asur, it's absolutely prohibited. It is simply prohibited uh, by the Torah to use any mystical procedure to tell you what the future will bring. That's a verse in the Torah. Your faith in God must be complete. That means you have to learn Torah, you have to do the mitzvot, and 
if you do the mitzvot and, and learn Torah, then uh, you just have to trust in God that the correct things will happen. It's prohibited to engage in any mystical procedure to try to predict the future. Well, those, those are the three categories that we're talking about. He continues and says, Ayan the Shirei Bracha. Take a look in this Sefer Shirei Bracha, he says. Now, the, 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 the Sefer he's about to quote was written by the Chidah, Rav Chaim, Yosef, David, Azulai, Chidah, Chet, Yud, Dawid, Aleph, the Chidah, Rav Chaim, Yosef, David, Azulai. He was, uh, he was uh, the big name back in the 18th century. He lived in Hebron, just south of where I'm sitting now. The, uh, and he, he was one of the few great rabbis, one of the few all-time great rabbis who combined in a single personality, greatness in halacha, Jewish law, and greatness in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. He wrote several shelves full of, full of svarim, some of them mystical treatises, some of them halachic treatises, commentaries on the Torah, commentaries on the Gemara, commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. The book we're about to quote is actually a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch that he wrote, immensely influential both in the world of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and in the world of Halakha, uh, Jewish law. Well, well, he, he, he says as follows. These are his words. Kibalti Rabotai. My, my masters taught me, my, my mister, the, the rabbis who taught me Jewish mysticism instructed me. If they were thinking about doing something, making plans for the future, my, my, my mystical teachers, if they were planning, making plans what to do in the future, and they were in doubt about what to do in the future. How do they decide what to do, which plans to make for the future? They would take a chumash, the five books of Moses, in Hebrew, of course, or Tanakh, or they take a whole Sefer Tanakh, in Hebrew, of course. They would open the Sefer, they would open the chumash, or open the Tanakh, the Ro'im, the Rosh Hadaf, and they'd look at the first thing at the top of the page. They'd look and see what verse in the Torah stood at the top of the page that they happened to open up to. The CM, and he concluded, that maybe they got this idea, maybe my mystical uh, teachers got this idea of using a chumash to guide them in making their plans. Maybe they got this idea from the rabbis of the Gemara, maybe. The Hagam Amru even though the great rabbis of the Gemara said, you shouldn't rely upon mystical lotteries to make any decisions, even though the great rabbis of the Gemara said, you should not rely upon mystical lotteries uh, in order to plan the future. Nonetheless, Kagon Zeshari, in this way, it is permitted. If you're using a Chumash, or if you're using a Tanakh, 
opening it up at random, looking at the first verse at the top of the page in order to be guided in making your decisions, in order to be guided in making your plans. Uh, that's apparently okay because that's what my teachers did. Well, uh, we have here some tension, do we not? This seems to fly in the face of what the, the, uh, our author just said on the previous screen. Our author, Rabbi Hillel, the contemporary Rosh Yeshiva in Me'a Sha'arim, uh, the Kabbalistic Yeshiva, uh, wrote on the previous screen, you can't do things like this. And then he quotes the, great, the greatest of the rabbis from the 18th century, who reported in the name of his rabbis that that's exactly what they were doing. Well, if that's what, what his teachers were doing, well, I guess it must be okay, he said. And Tzainan the bottom line conclusion, the contemporary Rabbi Hillel says, this was just published a few years ago, anyone who uses, no, this is not Mutsato, uh, Azulai was the family name, Rabbi Azulai. Uh, Mutsato was in Italy, this one was here in Eretz Israel. Um, uh, in uh, as much later, right? The famous Rabbi Lutzaka lived well before uh, this rabbi. The um, bottom line conclusion is anyone who wants to use a mystical procedure to instruct others what to do, anyone who wants to cast a mystical lottery in order to make decisions for others, not for himself, not for herself, Asur. That's what's prohibited. Even if you're using a Chumash, even if you're using a biblical text, if you're using the biblical text, the Sefer, to make a decision for others, to instruct someone else what to do or what to avoid doing, that's prohibited. The only, uh, the only situation in which you're allowed to do this seems to be if you're casting the lottery or just opening up uh, the book at random and looking at the first verse in the top of the page. It, 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 the only situation in which this is permissible is if you're doing it privately by yourself for yourself. And here is the key point. That's why I underlined it. The key point, the issue you are trying to resolve must be an issue which cannot be decided by human reason. The power of the human mind is unable to guide you normally. You should make your decisions about what to do or what not to do based on the strength of your of human reason. That's why God gave you a brain in order to think with. Uh, but sometimes uh, human reason abandons you and you're unable to reach a rational decision about what to do. And if it turns out to be impossible to reach a rational decision upon about what to do, and it, the whole issue concerns only you, 
and other people are not going to be involved, you're not, not, you're not making decisions for other people. Your decision is going to affect only yourself. Hitiru, this, they permitted opening up a, a chumash at random and using that for guidance. If your decision is going to affect others, no, no good, no good, um, uh, no good. Uh, only, only if uh, it's uh, if it's a personal matter. In his words, beno levein atzmo. Only if it's between you and yourself. Uh, only if you're the only person involved. But you, you, you can't do this for other people. Yes, well, we're going to see specific examples of making aliyah, as you ask in chat, uh, whether or not to remain. In, uh, we'll see some famous examples coming up, not today, next time. We'll see some famous examples of great rabbis in Europe in the days of the Holocaust who uh, could not decide whether or not to uh, abandon Eastern Europe before the Nazis came and flee to Eretz Israel or stay where they are or flee to America, they couldn't decide. We'll, we'll see specific examples of this coming up next time. Yeah, well, of course, uh, uh, you, you, can only, you can only work with what you know. Of course, anything might have a potential impact on others in the future, but if, it, uh, if uh, given your knowledge at the moment, you are the only one involved, and it's not going to impact on anyone else, then, Rabbi Hillel says, feel free to open up a, a chumash at random, look at the verse at the top of the page, or use some other method and uh, be guided by God. In the absence of any human reason guiding you, and first choice is always, first choice must always be using human reason. If you cannot reach a rational decision about what to do, then, if you are the only person affected, it's okay, not required, but okay to use uh, a mystical procedure. He, he, he goes on, the same author continues and says, Goral B'Shem Hagra, the famous method of, of uh, mystical decision-making, which is quoted in the name of the Gra. The Gra was the Gaon of Vilna. His name was Erav Eliyahu, 18th century, a contemporary of the Chida, Contemporary, the Chidah whom we quoted, the Chidah was in was in, uh, in Hebron, here in Eretz Yisrael, the Gra, who we're referring to now was, was in Vilna, in Lithuania, but they were contemporaries. And uh, not only were they contemporaries, uh, they occupied similar positions in their communities. In, in, in the Sephardic world, the Chidah was the greatest of the Kabbalists and the greatest of the halachists. And in the, in the Ashkenaz world, in Lithuania, the Gra occupied these two positions as well. He was also one of the few great personalities who combined greatness in mysticism and greatness in halacha. And there's this Goral Hagra, and we're going to speak specifically about how to cast this, uh, this, uh, this lottery a little later. Nizkar uh, Roshona, uh, the eight Nochemet Olama Rishona. This Goral uh, Hagra, which has become fairly famous today and is referred to in many Svarim, and we're going to see many references to it, uh, is first mentioned historically back in the days of World War I. 
Now, you don't have to be a great historian to know World War I, we're talking about the beginning of the 20th century. Beginning of the 20th century, that's 200 years after the period of the Gras. Back in the days of the Gras, no one ever mentioned this mystical procedure in writing, nor in any generation after the Gras, until the beginning of the 20th century, in the days of World War I, when all of a sudden it became fairly popular. Now this uh, raises some very interesting historical questions. How is it possible that a mystical procedure uh, introduced by the Gras in order to make decisions back in the 18th century uh, was shrouded in such total absolute secrecy that apparently no one knew about it until around the year uh, 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 1915. Uh, this is a little bit of a historical question which should make you a little bit wary of whether or not the whole story is true. There's not a single reference to this Goral Hagra in earlier generations, surely not in the days of the Gra, when you would expect people to have spoken about it if the Gra actually did it, not in the generation of the Gra's disciples, the Gra's disciples never mentioned it, and you would expect them at some point in their voluminous writings to have mentioned it if their master, the Gra, had actually done it. Hamakor Harishon, the absolute earliest source dealing with this mystical lottery uh, uh, is in a book called Rifu'ah V'chayim Yerushalayim. This is a safer which I've never held in my hands. Uh, I, I, I'm not, not entirely sure what the book is about, but it's quoted by this Rabbi Hillel. All, everything we've seen so far is a direct quote from the tshuva of, uh, of Rav Hillel, the Rosh Hashiva in Me'asharim today. Well, uh, let's see how he quotes this Sefer. What it says is, and the Sefer was, was published in 1892, 200 years after the Gra, a little bit over 200 years after the Gra, Gra Chumash, the way to use a Chumash as a, uh, for mystical guidance, the way to use it is like this. Yikach Chumash Shalem. You take a complete Chumash, not just Bereshes, not just Shmos, all five them together in one volume. Viasem Yadav of Pasukze, and you put your hand on the verse in Bereshes, Perakhe, verse 1, this is the verse you put your hand on. It says in the verse, Zer Sefer told us Adam. This is the book of the history of man. Put your hand on that verse. The Omar Pasuk, and then you recite another verse, this one from Vayikra. The verse that you recite while you're holding your hand on the first verse is Vanatan Acharod et Shnei Seirim Goralot Goral Echad Lashkem Recite the verse in Vayikra, which says in Aaron, part of the Yom Kippur uh, ritual, Aharon the Kohen uh, put the two lots, there was a lottery, put the two lots, one on the head of the goat that went to Azazel, the scapegoat, one on the head of the goat, which would be, which would be sacrificed to God in the temple, or back in those days in the Mishkan, they were still in the wilderness on the way to Eretz Yisrael. So you see, Aharon uh, used a divine lottery to be guided about which animal 
is to be used for Azazel, the scapegoat, and which animal is to be used for sacrifice in the Mishkan or later in the in the Beis Hamikdash for a Kodesh Baruch That's the verse you recite while you're holding your hand on the first verse in Genesis. V'yomah. And then you say, May it be thy will, O God, for the sake of your holy and pure names, may it be thy will, God, that you inform me, immediately, at one go, you answer my question. Uh, this is my question. Let the God, let the answer to my question be be indicated to me in the seventh letter of the eighth line. From where I open up the Chumash. I open up the Chumash, the eight, seventh letter in the eighth line. Let that letter give me the clue about what to, the answer to my question is. And that will clarify my question, leaving no doubt about what God wants me to do. Oh, well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, the name of the Gra, the name of the Gaon is not mentioned here. Uh, but, this is very similar to the procedure which today is used in the name of the Grah. And it's uh, clearly a, 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 a mystical lottery system, which is used for divine guidance. You don't know what to do. You ask God the question in exactly this procedure. You count up the lines, you get the letter, and whatever letter your finger lands on, the seventh letter in the, in the eighth line, that letter will be the clue that will reveal to you the answer to the question which you ask God and you'll have the information straight from heaven about what to do or what not to do. Now, that's the earliest reference we find anywhere. 1892 is pretty late in Jewish history. That's the earliest reference we find anywhere of using a chumash, using a biblical text for a, as a lottery system for getting divine guidance from the heavens. Who do you ask to decipher the letter? <laughs> well, uh, we're going to see that, uh, that frequently the answers that you receive uh, can be interpreted in different ways. And, uh, and it's, uh, of course, up to the person who has received the inspiration God has sent your finger to this letter in order to tell you something, and therefore you have to understand the meaning of the verse your, your, your finger lied on, or according to this method, the letter your, uh, your finger relied on. We're going to see specific examples of people who have done this, great rabbis who have done it, and what the results were, and how they went about interpreting the results. We'll, we'll, we'll get to examples of that. Uh, not right away, but we'll get there. Um, now, in, 1890, in 1892, again, pretty late in Jewish history, especially since we're talking about something which originated with the Gra in the 18th century, uh, it's the first reference we have to this kind of lottery system. 
the earliest reference that we have that, that associates this with the Grah himself? Yes, of course, rather like the high priest had to interpret the results of the Urim Vitumlum, the Urim Vitumlum would uh, present one letter, a single letter, as an answer to the question of the high priest back in the biblical days, and that single letter had to be interpreted by the high priest. Well, the earliest source we have, which associates this method of using a biblical text to receive divine guidance, is a sefer written by um, uh, uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Landau. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's let's see what he says. The um, Goral lottery system developed by Hagaon Zenu Rabenu Eliyahu Zal, the lottery system designed by the great Rabbi, uh, our, uh, uh, the, the strength of ages Rabbi Eliyahu of uh, Vilna, that's the Grah, works as follows. Here's what you do: Kach Sefer. Uh, take a full chumash, not just bracious, not just shmos, all five books of the chumash bound together in a single volume. I think about it for a moment, and you, you'll realize that, uh, uh, of course, this method of lottery could not have existed in the days before printing. But in, in, in the early days, uh, uh, books were in the form of a scroll. The idea of books being bound in pages, that began with printing. A little bit of an exaggeration. They did have, uh, uh, before printing, there, there were books bound, uh, bound with pages, but it wasn't the usual way of making biblical texts. In, in any event, the method of the draw is as follows. Uh, take a, a complete homish. The chumash has to be edited with exquisite precision. Take a chumash without any mistakes in it. It might sound strange to you. I mean, who, 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 who would print a, a chumash, a biblical text with mistakes in it? But of course, back in those days, uh, there were plenty of chumashim, plenty of Torah editions, printed editions with plenty of mistakes in them. Uh, after all, the first time that in the history of printing, the first time in the history of printing that Jews published a biblical text was uh, when I was uh, I was around uh, around 20 years old at the time. It was a great event in the Jewish world. Uh, a Jewish publisher in Yerushalayim by the name of Koren. We're talking about the 1960s. A, a Jewish publisher in Yerushalayim, but they have Koran published for the first time a, a Tanakh, a Jewish publisher, uh, uh, Jews for the first time uh, published a Tanakh. There was no such thing in the whole history of printing until quite recently. Every edition had been printed by non-Jews, and some were more precise, some were less precise, but, but the, 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 the publication of the Koran Tanakh was revolutionary in its uh, in its precision, uh, exquisite precision in everything. It completely revolutionized the uh, the accuracy of biblical texts. So in any event, back in those days, 
before the Kor and Tanakh, you take the best Chumash you could find, the one which is, uh, uh, yeah, a, a publisher should, of course, uh, no, the Hebrew Publishing Company in Manhattan they just just did a photo offset of the British Bible, the British Bible Society's uh, uh, um, uh, Bible. The British Bible Society uh, printed it for missionary purposes all over the world, and uh, and the Hebrew Publishing just uh, in Manhattan just uh, uh, photo offset that edition. The um, so you, you, you take the the, the precise chumash. Belit Targum, a Chumash, just the biblical text, without Unculus, without any translations in it, just the original Hebrew text. Haftarot, without the additional readings that are done in the synagogue for the Haftarah, uh, none of that, just a pure Chumash with no additions to it whatsoever. Hanach et Katan. A nikrazeret. Put your uh, small finger. Put your small finger. Shalyad uh, yamin uh, on your right hand. The small finger on your right hand. Uh, put it on the words in Genesis five, chapter five, verse one. Zeh told us Adam. This is the this is the book of the history of man. Same verse that had been quoted in that earlier sefer a few screens ago. Put the, your, the little finger of your right hand on that verse. The etzba katan shall yad small alatevot, and you put the little finger of the left hand on the verse in Devarim, chapter 34, verse 12, la'ine kol Yisrael, in the eyes of all Israel. Okay, so you have your two little fingers occupied by pressing down on two different verses in the in the Chumash. Uh, keep all your other fingers on the edges of the of the book. And using your thumb, your thumbs, now your uh, your little fingers uh, are on those verses. All the other fingers are uh, at the edges of the page. Now you use your thumbs to Use your thumbs to open up the Chumash randomly, without any plan, without uh, thinking about where you're opening it. And from the page you open, count seven pages forward. Well, use your thumbs, two thumbs, to open randomly and count seven pages forward from there. Uh, uh, when you come to the fourth column, on the seventh page, it was printed in columns. The fourth column on the second page, you know, you, you know how it works. Like, like in the Gemara, the uh, Gemara has uh, uh, Daf Hey, page five, Omud Aleph and Omud Beit. Column one, column two on the on the front of the page and the back of the page. The Gemaras are printed typically with one column on each page. The modern Hebrew word for page is Amud. That means a column. And uh, each page had two columns on it, one on this side of the page, the other on the other side of the page. Well, well, Humashim in those days were typically published with two columns on one side of the page, two columns on the back side. So every page had four columns. Uh, page five, column A, column B, column C, column D. Uh, 
So you open up the, the, the Chumash at random, uh, then you count seven pages forward, and then you go to the fourth column on that page. That's the, the, the on the reverse side, the left-hand column. Uh, then you count seven lines down on that column. And on the eighth line, count the seventh letter, go to the seventh letter on the eighth line. Uh, and after that, the words following, the uh, uh, the words following that letter, uh, the words following the eighth letter uh, uh, are going to give you the message that you need to answer your question. The tadame inyan inyan. Then you compare what it says in the verse with the question you asked, and you'll have your answer. That is the earliest reference to the actual mechanism by which the uh, Goral Hagra was called, the Goral Hagra, the way it actually worked. The evidence that it actually comes from the Gra, from the Gaon Mavilna, is vanishingly thin, but uh, that's the way it's, it was done according to the earliest source that exists regarding this message, regarding this matter. Now, now uh, 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 unfortunately, unfortunately, this book, uh, which is quoted in various places, uh, no longer exists. There is the original manuscript upon which this book was based. It's a published book, originally written by hand in manuscript, and the manuscript was submitted to the publisher. Unfortunately, the original manuscript does not exist and cannot be examined uh, for authenticity, but this is the text which exists in order to describe the actual mechanism. Okay, now uh, what do we have so far? Uh, we have the uh, opinion of the greatest of the contemporary mystics, uh, Rabbi Hillel, that uh, you're simply not allowed to use any mystical procedure uh, unless you're making a decision which affects only yourself and no one else, and you are unable to reach a rational conclusion about what to do. The correct thing to, to, to uh, the correct way to resolve a problem involving other people is to reach a mutual decision with all the people involved. Uh, the, the correct way to reach a decision that involves only yourself is to carefully weigh the evidence on both sides, or however, however many sides the issue has, and come to a rational decision about what the best the best path is, what the best plan is. If that fails, then you can use a mystical procedure. And the exact methods which are associated with the GRA, well, uh, we have that detail on the previous screen. Now, well, let's flash a little bit further forward to the year uh, 1912. Ma'aseh, uh, uh, Masha'ira, here's a story which occurred, an event, which occurred in the city of Eisenhower in Eastern Europe. There was a great Jewish rabbi in that town, uh, uh, spiritually pure, a great rabbi. Shmuel, his name was Moshele Schmelzer. Moshele Schmelzer lived in that town in the beginning of the 20th century. 
והוא עסק ביאש. He was in the Yash business. Yash is a uh, is a, an abbreviation for Yayin Saruf. Yayin Saruf that's brandy. He was in the brandy business. Uh, a wholesaler of brandy. Yash Yayin Saruf. Uh, distilled, distilled, yeah, and sort of distilled wine. Distilled wine is brandy. That was, that was his business. Uh, he was quite wealthy. He had a very successful business. But his entire business depended upon loans. He took out loans from other people to finance his business. His business was quite successful. But it was all based on loans. He took out rather like any large business enterprise nowadays uh, is also based on loans. Get the loans from the bank. You get 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 investors to uh, to, to invest in your business. Well, uh, he had investors who lent him money, and he was quite successful in using that investment in order to build up quite a successful brandy enterprise. And those loans, of course, had to be repaid. And his business was very successful, and he was able to repay the loans on schedule, no problem at all. And his business flourished. His creditors got their money back, and everyone was happy. And this businessman hired a guard, hired a worker, a night watchman, whose job it was to guard the warehouse with the brandy at night. That was a business expense. He hired a night watchman to guard the, to guard the warehouse of, of brandy at night. Makes perfect sense. Of course, of course, that's what a, what a rational businessman would do. That night watchman partnered up with a certain thief, a ganav. The ganavu, avu, sakrav, yayin, yash. And the night watchman, together with this thief, stole a huge amount of brandy from the warehouse. And as a result, the owner of the brandy business could not meet his payment schedule to his creditors. He couldn't pay uh, the monthly uh, the monthly fees for the for the loans he had taken out, and now he's in trouble. His merchandise has been stolen, and uh, he, 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 up until this point. He's had a very successful business and had no problem uh, keeping to a schedule of payments to repay the people who lent the money to get the business going. But now he's strapped for cash. He sold all the rest of the brandy that was not stolen. They didn't get all of it. And he uh, used the money he got to settle what debts he could. He dissolved his business. He's out of business. Uh, but the amount of money he got from selling 
the remaining merchandise was not enough to cover his debts. He simply was unable to satisfy all his creditors. Uh, he was still in debt with no means of income. His business was, uh, was out of business. Uh, no means of uh, satisfying his creditors. Now he's really feeling bad and he's really in financial hot water. Azai, then, Yashvu Midrash, Anashim Lamdim. He was in the Beta Midrash, where the, where the uh, people were learning Torah, the scholars learning uh, Gemara in the Beta Midrash, and he was there. Dibru Ododze, everyone in the Beta Midrash was talking about this. This was the news of the town that one of the more successful businessmen was out of business because all his merchandise got stolen. And the Tamhu and the, in the in the base of Midrash, they were amazed. They found this whole story amazing. Amru, they said in the base of Midrash, it says in the Torah, Lo yi'unela tzaddik Says in the Torah that a tzaddik, a tzaddik, will never have anything bad happen to him. There's so in the Torah. There's the verse, Mishlei, Eric 12, verse 21. How is it possible that Moshe uh, Schmelzer, there's this upright, uh, righteous Jew, had something so horrible happen to him. It's, it's, it's just not right. How is it possible that, that this tzaddik got into such hot water, got into such financial trouble? They thought, Maybe he's not such a tzaddik like we thought. Maybe he's really not so upright as we thought. Maybe he's not so righteous as we thought. Maybe he was a little bit of a fraud, and maybe that's why this happened to him as a divine punishment for having engaged in some hanky-panky in his business. Maybe that's what happened here. Mikyatsu? The, 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 the rabbinic scholars in the base leaders discussed among themselves what to do and they decided to cast the Goral Hagor to find out why this man was the victim of this theft and why he was put out of business and why he was left a debtor they wanted an answer from heaven so they decided to use the uh, cast the lottery system of the Gra. I knew, namely, what they did was if the Husefer, they opened up a Chumash. They counted seven pages from where they opened up randomly. And then they counted seven paragraphs from where they opened up. Uh, uh, then they went to the seventh verse after after the seventh paragraph and beginning with the eighth verse they saw the answer to their question so they would understand what happened and why it happened they did exactly this procedure with the Chumash 
יש חסרון בצדקתו, to find out what kind of hanky-panky this guy must have engaged in in his business so that he received this divine punishment. נפל על הפסוק, and this was the verse. They landed on, they ultimately landed on. Why do you fear to speak against my servant Moshe? Which is exactly what they had done. They suspected Moshe Schmelzer of having engaged in business hanky-panky. All the people were shocked when they got this answer from the Chumash. They knew, and they knew. Shachatu. They had sinned against Rav Moshele by suspecting him of being anything less than a perfect tzaddik. They were guilty of suspecting the tzaddik of doing something improper. They were guilty of suspecting that the tzaddik was an impure person. Oh, okay. Well, Well, uh, this is uh, uh, before we had the earliest description of how to actually perform the Goral Hagra. Here we have the earliest example of it actually being put into use. And uh, the answer to the question, the question was, what, what's wrong with that guy? Uh, what evil has he done in order to deserve this divine punishment of having his business stolen out from under him and ending up a debtor? And the answer was, How dare you suspect my servant, Moshe? Okay. Uh, 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 what we're going to do next time is continue with more examples, bringing this down into contemporary times. And after we've seen a number of more examples next week, we'll be able to draw, I hope we'll be able to draw some concrete conclusions about exactly how to do this, when to do it, when it's satisfactory, when it's approved, and when it's not approved. Until then, uh, I wish you uh, a good week and eventually a Shabbat Shalom, an easy fast uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow's a fast day. I look forward to seeing you all again uh, a week from today. Until then, Shalom Shalom.